All right, Acts chapter 16, 11 to 15, the title of tonight's uh, talk is uh, Down to the River to Pray, and we, we, we feel enough here tonight, um, I'll, I'll share my thoughts, and I'd like to hear what you think. Um, maybe there's some things that come up that you, you would find valuable, and, and we'd love to hear what, what, what you think. So, um, I don't want to disrupt the recording, otherwise I would say let's just discuss it from the beginning, but I'd like to record it because there are people that listen to this, and so I'm just going to go over some thoughts that I have here. Um, let me just recap quickly, that's the map. We are dealing with Paul's second missionary journey. Um, just a quick question, um, who is on this journey? It's Paul and Timothy. Timothy was picked up, uh, Derby or Lystra, and before him, Silas. So basically what we know is there's three guys and they are busy. They are busy. Last week we spoke about that section of land where they were. They went through Asia, and what was incredible about that is that Paul is a preacher of the gospel. Everywhere he goes, he, he, he's successful in what he does. He's successful in evangelizing, and he's successful in the mission. But the text says, as we read last year, ach, last week, that when he travels through Asia, ach, ach, Asia sorry, what, is, what does the Spirit do? Tells him, it basically tells him to keep quiet. There's no preaching opportunity for him. Not, nothing to say. And that it's like he's muzzled by the Holy Spirit. Or there's just nobody who wants to hear. And I think that was frustrating for Paul. So he decides, you know what, uh, where do I want to go? I want to go north. So he wants to go north into Bithynia over there. And what happens there? The text says the Spirit of Christ blocked it up. So when he wants to preach, the Spirit says no. When he wants to go in any direction, the Spirit says no. So he ends up um, traveling, him and his companions, down there to the coast. And that, the coast is a dead end, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's the end of the road. Unless you get onto a ship. So there at Troas, Paul, Timothy, and Silas arrive. I think frustrated. Oh my goodness, we've traveled a thousand miles. I don't know how far it was, but it looks like a thousand miles. And we haven't spoken to anybody. And we haven't been able to preach the gospel. God has muzzled us. And what, we, what I pointed out to us last week, it's uh, one of the reasons for that, I believe, was because there's a rich ministry happening down here in the south because there we see the seven churches of Revelation. God had already people that's going to sort out Asia. God wanted Paul somewhere else. And there's a lot of lessons that we pulled um, out, of, out of that. So, so he arrives there at Troas, and then what happens there, ladies and gentlemen? He goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, he gets a vision of a man calling him. And this man is calling him and saying, hey, come help. Where's, where's this man calling from? All the way over there in Macedonia. Wouldn't it be great if we just had visions like that about everything? Hey? Right? Here's the best breakfast that you need to eat tomorrow morning to be the healthiest during the day. Simple things. It would be crazy. So, um, I think this is incredible. God tells Paul, you've come to a dead end. Yes, I know it's been silent. Yes, I know you, couldn't, you, you didn't reach anybody. But I want you to know that I, I haven't lost sight of you. I'm calling you. Get on a ship. You need to come over. And now, we suspect there's at least four guys. So, it's Luke, Paul. Silas and Timothy, all four of them, and they are ready to go wherever they are flexible. 
All right, just some questions to give you a taste of what's coming tonight. Why would a person delay in getting baptized? Is it something that immediately happens when you make up your mind you want to follow him? Or, you know, and, and if somebody says, no, I'll do it next week or next year, is that significant or not? Um, who needs Jesus more, the poor or the rich? Who'd like to guess? Trick question. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Roddy. The answer is yes. Are you a hospitable person? Do you like opening your house for people? And attached to that, do you think that that's an attribute of a Christian? That should be an attribute of a Christian. Um, fourthly, what prevents people from fully understanding the gospel? Is it just the decision of themselves? Is it something in their heart? Or is it God? Or is it they being blinded somehow? And, and lastly, what do you prefer? Sewing or fishing? And I say this because sort of these are the key strategies when we talk about evangelism. Is you sow seed, so you, you talk about, you, you just throw ideas into people's heads that come from the Word of God in conversation, and then you leave them. Like you throw a seed and you leave it, right? And let God make the rain come and the rest done by itself. Fishing, however, is you throw in the line. I'm talking about individual fishing, uh, hook fishing. You throw in the line and you've got to watch and wait. You've got to check the, the, the bait you put on. You've got you to... So, so, and that's when you um, constantly are in touch with people and you are um, talking to them about Christ and you're waiting to see when they're going to bite. Which one do you prefer? Sowing and leaving or like in being intensely involved and hoping the person would take the bite? All right. So let's get into the text. So they are in Troas. The text says, verse 11, Acts 16. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. What do we know about Philippi? Well, there was a, there's a book dedicated to Philippi, right? To the church in Philippi. We call it the book of Philippians. So obviously at some point or another, there's a church there. I would like to submit to you tonight, this is the start of the church in Philippi. Um, Philippi used to be called Dathos, but it was repaired and modified and updated by a man by the name of Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And from then on, the city received its name from him, and that's why it's called Philippi. Um, it was a Roman colony, the text says, um, which means, in my understanding, that it was ruled by Rome. But it was, um, it was primarily consisted out of um, Romans. And so you wouldn't necessarily find a huge Jewish population there, um, as we will discover in the text tonight. So here they are in this city, Roman colony. And what do you think they're waiting for? What are they looking for? Probably looking for a man that needs help, isn't it? That was the dream. There's a man in a dream calling from Macedonia, hey, come help us. 
So I think the apostles are on the lookout for someone, and the text says that they stay there several days. Let's go on. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. There were Jews. I suspect that these ladies were Jews. Proselytes, maybe. Not sure, but I, I suspect that, they were, that there were a handful of them. Um, we don't think that there was a synagogue in Philippi. Otherwise, where would Paul have gone? He would have gone to the synagogue. That's what he's done every time. But there doesn't seem to be such a place in Philippi. And so the faithful Jews seems to have met by the river. Um, why? Well, because synagogues were usually built close to bodies of water. Anybody would like to guess why? Why would a Jew build his sort of, sort of his little church close to a river or a dam, do you think? Because Jews, well, that baptism, okay, good, yeah. A provide a livelihood, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so specifically, the, the, there was a, in, in Jewish society, there's a lot of washing, a lot of ritualistic washing and cleansing that needs to take place. Um, you see it all over the book of Leviticus. And so they, they made their little um, synagogues close to um, uh, places where there was, there was large bodies of water. Now, in this case, it's not a synagogue. It's, the text says it's a place of prayer. And apparently, it quite frequently happened that if the city didn't have a synagogue, the reason why they're going out of the city is because this colony and probably didn't allow a synagogue to be built in, inside the city. So what they did is they compromised by putting a little place of prayer close to a river where they could do their ritual washing, and it was sort of just a small amphitheater, maybe with some brick walls, around, um, rock walls around, and the people would just meet there to pray on the Sabbath, for example. And so this seems to be the place where Paul is now going, and he finds a bunch of women there. I think um, Paul was super excited for the first time, he's been in a drought, he's been in a desert, right? For the first time, he gets some people he can talk to about Jesus. Um, it's been boring. He has been muzzled. And now he comes across these ladies. Um, on the contrary to what uh, one would normally think would happen, you would normally think Paul's going to meet a bunch of men. No, he doesn't. He comes across a group of women. And I'm sure that Paul probably expected to meet a man somewhere on the journey because it was a man who called him in the dream. Um, but this time it doesn't seem to be so. And I, you know, as I reflected on that, things don't always work out the way we think it should. But God's will is always done. So Paul is talking, and it seems to me like in this instance... He is fishing and sowing. He is putting the word out there. The text says, Laleo, he's talking. But they seem to listen. And so he's got an audience to talk to about Christ. Verse 14 says, One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord open a heart to respond to Paul's message. So there's a few things in here, um, perhaps not too significant. Um, who, let's start off with who was Lydia. She was a dealer in purple, and purple dye was very valuable because it came from what they call a shellfish, and apparently often you had to dive deep for these, and so specialized people had to get that. And only the royalty or extremely wealthy would wear clothing that was dyed in purple. So what does that tell us about this woman? She's very wealthy. And she's a tradeswoman. She's far away from home. Because Thyatira, where is that, ladies and gentlemen? It's in, it's in Asia Minor. It's one of the seven churches of Revelation. It's part of the area that Paul went through but didn't preach. So she comes from there. She's far away from home. But as you'll see now, she's got a house. She's got a dwelling in Philippi. And she's probably there because of business. My um, two cents. So Thyatira, uh, interestingly, is in a province called Lydia. And so the scholars say many people in that area apparently had the name Lydia. Maybe she got it from the fact that her province's name was also Lydia. Um, and lastly, I mean, importantly, she was a worshiper of God. She was a good, godly woman. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not 100% sure. I would, if I take a guess, I would say that she was uh, potentially a proselyte, that she came to the Jewish faith. And it is a Sabbath. She is in the sort of the place of prayer, which was a common place, common thing for the Jews to do if there was no synagogue. So I would put my bets on that she, when the text says that she was a worshiper of God, it means she was a worshiper of the God of Israel. But here's the crux. And I can already see Sasha's head is going, this we need to talk about. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Well, some of you will not get the significance of that statement, but if you've, if you've read and studied anything about Calvinism, you would know this is a problem. Because it seems like, if you just read that verse, it's saying that God did the opening of her heart. And you might say then, well, what about the other woman? Did, did God not open? Why did God not open the hearts of the other woman as well? That's classic Calvinism. God decides who he's going to save and when he's going to save them and how he's going to save them. Regardless of what you do or think or want to. God does it. It's a problem. And this is one of the verses that they use. This text actually, by the way, that we're dealing with tonight. This is one of the key texts the Calvinists use to uh, promote infant baptism. As you'll see in a in a moment's time. Now, um, this is a difficult thing, and I'm not going to resolve this in the next 10 minutes, but my initial response is one of two things. What does that mean? Well, either like the Calvinist says, that God opened her heart to the message miraculously. So like God comes into your heart and says, boom, open up, and now you can listen to what Paul is saying and accept it. So her heart was divinely opened out of God's grace. It had nothing to do with her. Nothing to do with her character or her seeking for truth. She's, she's dark in a sin. She's blind. She cannot see the gospel. Unless God comes and opens up, puts the light into her heart and opens her up to receive the message, she would never receive the message. So that's the one explanation. That's a Calvinistic explanation. Or we could say that God opened her heart through the message through the Apostle Paul. 
Her heart was hungry for it. Her heart was ready for it. And the, te- the, the, the message of the gospel opened it up for her. So it's, it's sort of like the idea that God, God opened a heart that was unlocked. It was unlocked. She, she was willing to accept it. But the message totally opened it. That's maybe another explanation. But there's a similar incident in Luke chapter 24 that might help us get a little bit of insight. Where Jesus has a similar situation with with his disciples. He has risen from the grave. He is going to meet them now face to face. And something interesting happens um, in verse... uh, 40, I'll read from verse 40, Luke 24, 40. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So Jesus is with these disciples. He is now a risen man. He's got the wounds, and he's eating. Can you imagine how that feels? And then verse 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So let's just hear this. Jesus is resurrected in front of them and he points them back and he says, Do you remember when I was with you before the crucifixion? I told you about the scriptures. And you know the scriptures. The disciples knew the scriptures. But they couldn't couldn't draw a line between the scriptures and this event, because they, they couldn't even imagine that this event could happen, okay? But then he says in verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. It's like sort of, I don't think, and I might be wrong, and this is open for discussion, I don't think it was sort of a miraculous, bloops, now you understand everything. I think when he explained it to them, and he's actually in front of them as the risen Lord, and he's communicating with them, I think that's when the aha moment came. Oh, now the scriptures make sense. I don't know if it's making sense what I'm saying, but I'm drawing the parallel with the story of Lydia, Lydia, just trying to say this, that when Paul was talking to her about the gospel, to Lydia, I don't think there's something miraculously outside of herself that just happened. I think her heart was ready and receptive. For truth. And when Paul communicated with her, she could see this is truth. And that's why she could accept it. And so I think there's, a, there's this participation when it comes to um, the, the moment of salvation. It's, 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 it's an effort from both sides, from God and from us. When we are ready and willing, God says, okay, I'll come in and change you. It goes hand in hand instead of just saying, it's all you or saying, it's all just God. There's a mixture. I don't think that God forces himself upon anybody. Because if we say that uh, Calvinism true, is true, we are saying that God forces himself upon people. And I don't think that is the case at all. I hope I don't confuse you about that, but I thought I just have to make some comments on that. Let's go to verse 15. So she believes in what happens next. When she and the members of her household were baptized. Oh my goodness. So, so, let's just line it up. There's a lot of stuff that's not being explained there. Now there's a household. And so when they all got baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. 
and she persuaded us. And that Greek word persuaded is as if they, they didn't want to. But she twisted their arms and they went. It was usual. In the book of Acts, you know, it was usual for those who came to faith to be baptized immediately. Acts chapter 2, on that day, they got baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, while he's traveling in his chariot, he sees water and he gets baptized. Uh, that's the Ethiopian eunuch. And here Lydia is baptized on the same day. Why were they immediately baptized? No, um, I believe because they were so deeply convicted. They were so deeply convicted. This is the truth. I'll do anything to be one with it. If this is the truth that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and I believe it fully from my heart, why not right now, at this moment? Total conviction leads to total immersion. When people delay their baptism, I suggest they're not fully convicted. If you're fully convicted, this is the moment that you get into contact with the blood of Christ. This is the moment that you, that, that you resonate with Jesus, that you want to become His servant, that He is your Lord. If this is the moment, why do you want to wait till next week or next year? Now, this is where the Calvinists come in. They say, well, uh, she was uh, baptized together with her family and... She probably had kids, and those kids also got baptized. The Bible doesn't say that they believed and then got baptized. So they say, well, because of her faith, because she's the one that believed, the rest of her family was also um, then baptized. That's the key argument. Everybody in our house were baptized, and they didn't have to believe. Well, you know, that there's, a, there's a huge problem with that, right? Then it contradicts the whole rest of the book of Acts. Repentance is a prerequisite for being baptized. That's what we see in the earliest chapters of Acts. So obviously, if that's what Acts 2 says, we can trust that that's the same thing that was required here in Acts chapter 16. Repentance was necessary. And even though the text doesn't tell us, I guarantee you there was a going home, there was a talking, there was a teaching of the gospel, and these people also accepted the gospel. And I think Lydia had a huge influence in that. I think she was an incredible person. And I think that she had influence. And so she comes home and she says, guys, you won't believe this. I've heard the story. And I, I, I'm going to follow Jesus from now on. And let me explain to you why. The people fell hand in hand with that. And the reason why I say people is because I personally don't believe that she had children. I believe the text doesn't say that it's her family. The text doesn't say that it's her children. The text doesn't indicate that she had a husband. And so most scholars, which I agree with, it's talking about her household. Well, who lives in her house? Well, she's a wealthy woman. She's got a big house. She's inviting four men to come and live in her house. That's huge for the first century. That, that's a huge house. She had servants. And so if I had to take a guess, an informed guess, my most informed guess is this, that the people in the household were a bunch of slaves, servants. There might have been some children there, but I don't think that she was a young woman that had young kids. Because she's successful in her business to the extent that she's got a, a, a house in a, in a distant city and she's far away from home. You can't, you can't run a business like that and be dedicated to small kids. Um, this is all speculation, just trying to make a, as best judgment as possible. 
And, and what we read further on, we'll look at that next week, is that Paul and them go to her house at another point in the story, and, and the brethren are there, the text says. Suddenly there's a church that includes men. I'd like to submit to you, I think, that these were slaves. I think she was an older type of woman. I think she was successful in business. She had some people in her house, servants, and they were all baptized into Christ the same way that we read right through the book of, the book of Acts. And the first thing that she does upon her conversion is hospitality. That's the first thing. Like she's, she's, she's new out of the water and she thinks to herself, okay, what am I going to do now? Uh, she says, I want to get these guys into my house. They must come live with me. Why? Um, I think two reasons, my opinion. To alleviate the disciples from perhaps renting somewhere else. I don't know exactly how it, it worked, but they, they, they come into a city that they don't know. They're four guys. It says that they've been there for a few days. Maybe their living arrangement wasn't too great. And maybe she just wanted to, to help them. Maybe this was from God. She was wealthy, had a large house, probably had servants that could help them, and she wanted to help them. That could be one reason. Another reason could be this, so she could learn from the apostles. Man, we need to spend some more time together. Come live under my roof so we can grapple, learn. I want to learn from you. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about your Damascus Road experience. Let's look at the book of Isaiah. Um, she, had, she had just heard a life-changing message. She was hungry and thirsty for more. And how much better if these guys could live with her just for a few days. And some more of this can be unpacked. I would like to submit that true conversion, people who are really sold out to Christ, true conversion always leads to serving and to seeking. And what I mean by that is just that if you've really come to know Christ and you give your life over, something happens in you where you stop being arrogant and expecting and you move over to wanting to serve others. Because when you come to understand that Jesus Christ came to serve, then you start to understand that's what you are also supposed to be about. And that's what she does. She says, hey, come into my house. I want to serve you. And the second thing is seeking. The concept of you want to have more. You're hungry for God's word. That's, on, honest, honestly, that's why I question people's conversion if they say, well, I'm not really interested in getting to know the Bible. I'm not really interested in getting to know Christ better. I question your conversion. Something's wrong. Because when you get baptized, the seed is planted in your heart. We call it the Holy Spirit. And you can, that seed has to be watered with the Word of God. You want the Spirit to grow in you, you've got to get into the Spirit stuff where the Spirit is written down. So let me conclude and then we can chat about some things if you want to. Um, potential converts are not always who we expect. Paul goes into Philippi, he doesn't know who he's going to meet. And I guarantee you when he walked in there, he probably didn't think it's going to be a bunch of women. He was still probably expecting a man to be his first convert in Europe. This is interesting. The first converts in Europe were, was, sorry, a woman. A woman. Um, and I've been wondering, and this is once again speculation, I've been wondering, who was the man in the dream? Could it potentially have been her husband that have died? I don't know. 
I don't know. And I wouldn't make truth claims on that. Secondly, use the opportunities God gives to mention Him. Paul had a wonderful opportunity here. Um, he had no opportunities in Asia, but he was always there ready for an opportunity. And this was next to a river. I sometimes miss opportunities. I really do. Like I'm in conversation with somebody and I, I realize that this conversation could go deeper. Oh, but my kid wants to go there and I've got to decide like, am I going to discipline the kid to have the conversation? Or um, you know, am I going to go with the kid and ignore the conversation? There's so many things like that that happens in our, in our daily lives. And so I think when there's an opportunity to sow seed into somebody's life, take it. Take it. Thirdly, the wealthy needs Jesus just as much as the poor. You'd agree with that? Here's a woman. She's got everything she wants and needs. And sometimes, I, you know, we, we, often in Christianity, we talk about a mission. Yeah, what are we going to do in this town? You know, let's get some food for the poor. I, I, I agree. It's great to help the poor. But the wealthy need Jesus too. Everybody needs the gospel. Um, Fourthly, what do I have here? Um, if we really want to know and understand God, He will open hearts and minds. Just going back to that section where it says that God opened her heart. I believe this is how it works. If Jesus says, if you seek me, well, God says that all over the Bible. If you seek me, you will find me. What does He say? Knock, and the door will be opened. And God knows who's knocking. Knocking is, Lord, I want to know the truth. That's knocking. When you have that type of heart, God will open. He will open. And you'll get to know Him. And that's still relevant for us as well. If we want to know more, we want to grow better, we want to be more like Christ, that opportunity is still there. Hospitality is a powerful way to show love. It's such a powerful way to show love. I feel, if, I, if, if I'm a hundred miles away from a person, I'm talking uh, figuratively, and I have them over at my house, and we eat something at my big house. You guys know where that is. Eh? Like when I have them over at my house, then I feel 50 miles closer to them. And they feel 50 miles closer to me. That's what hospitality does. It's such an honor to serve people. So, I don't know where you are at, but always be willing to open your home, have people over, and do a meal together. That's all that's on my mind. 